it's easier if he turns his toes out. Yeah. So so he spreads his feet apart really really wide, and and then he still can't get to parallel, right? But he but he can get lower. Am I correct? Good morning. Happy Monday. I have no coffee in hand, and it is perfect. All right. Coming off a very solid weekend. Saw some live music on Saturday. Had a big. Uh, Zoom call with the intensive people on Sunday was a great call. Still a little high from that, so kind of excited. So let's dig into today's Q&A. This is with Victor. And so Victor presented two case studies um, in his consultation call. We went off of a chessboard, off the first one, which was a basketball player, uh, end game, narrow ISA, and then somebody with a wide ISA um, with the lumbar fusion. So we had a lot of things to, to consider. Um, for those of you that, that are interested in understanding a little bit more about the Endgame representations, there are videos on the YouTube channel. So go and subscribe to that and um, get that information so you have that understanding if there's any confusion with this Q&A. Um, if you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation yourself, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and we can set up a 15-minute consultation from there. Just put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it. We will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding Monday. Looking forward to a great week, and I'll see you tomorrow. And there you go. We are now being recorded. Clock has started. Victor, what is your question? All right, so I think it would just be easier. I do have two chess boards, well, a chess board and a half. The full one is on this uh, post-it note. I don't know if you can <laughs> see clearly or not. High tech, okay, hang on, hang on. <laughs> what am I looking better, at? What measures am I looking at? These are hip range of motion. Yeah, okay, okay. Okay, got it. And yes. the trouble is, so he's a basketball player, trouble yep. with like, getting into an athletic position with his feet facing forward. It's easier if he turns his toes out. Yeah. So so he spreads his feet apart really, really wide, and and then he still can't get to parallel, right? But he, but he can get lower. Am I correct? He can't even get to, like, I wouldn't even say parallel. Yes. Yeah, I know. Okay. 30 so, degree deflection. <laughs> And then so here's moving what you're looking at. is also a problem. Yeah, here's what you're looking at. End game narrow, okay, end game narrow. Um, so he's got AP compression, and he's pushed forward first, and then he went over to his right side a little bit, which is why you got the abduction measures that you got, okay? So, um, so here's what you got to do. You got to move him to the left, okay, and then move him backwards. Okay. Because if you try to move him straight backwards, he's just going to make a, uh, a he's going right. to orient everything together. Okay. Chances are, is he really tall? Uh, yeah, it's pretty tall. Okay. Um, Somewhere around six feet. Oh, that's not, that's not tall. That's not tall. I'm pretty tall. <laughs> well, it's taller, taller than me. <laughs> so, so, but it's not really tall. Like when we talk about like the six foot nine, six foot ten guys. Um, gotcha. Yeah, they not have, that tall. They have some other center of gravity issues, but so so this guy probably won't do too badly. But chances are, he's still going to orient to try to get to try to get depth. 
um, just because of his physical structure and then his bias towards this type of a, a behavior. Because this is a performance-related behavior. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Uh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, you go. You go. I was going to say the other thing I was considering was the rate of connected tissue loading, too, like as he's moving. Like, it's one oh, thing yeah. to have him breathe and in a static position, all these things. But as soon as he's moving quickly, it obviously increases stiffness, like you've mentioned multiple times. So. Yeah. Yes, yes. So yes, because he's, he's got to be bouncy and he's got to be quick, right? And so mm -hmm. that's, that's how you use those connective tissues to your advantage. So, so a lot of times what, what here, here's one of the mistakes I think that people make when they're when they're dealing with athletes and, and performance is they're always comparing to the averages. Right? So average range of motion. So they're not, there's not normal range of motion, there are average ranges of motion. Right? And if I want an athlete to perform well, being average usually isn't the right answer because average people don't get to play sports at high levels, okay? It's okay. the above average people that have special qualities about them that get to do these things. So just because your guy can't do like a hip whip deep squat or something like that doesn't mean there's something wrong with him. It just means that that the performance-related strategies that he uses reduces relative movement compared to the average, which is expected under many circumstances. There might be some times where we want to see a whole lot more range of motion out of him, like when he's in some sort of recovery phase or he's trying to recoup from a, from a higher level performance and we need to, to reduce some of the muscle activity, promote uh, recoveries and things like that. But in general, you got a guy that's probably tuned up for performance related activities, right? So you can't, you can't rely on the averages. Yeah. And the only way to know, I know you mentioned this before, like if you give somebody like that who uses compressive strategies for performance benefit, if you give somebody too much range of motion, there's only one, I would imagine the only way to find out if it's too much for that person is to give them a range of motion, retest whatever you're, testing and then right. go there yeah that's just part of the training process so let me give you for instance so i got sent a message uh yesterday um from one of my buddies that's working with a really high level pitcher that's coming off of a surgery and we had a comparative uh, uh video from before the surgery when he was throwing at a certain velocity and another one where he was throwing at a different like a, it's actually a lower velocity coming off of his surgery when you look at the relative movement that's available during the two videos he's got less relative motion available to him when he's throwing faster right okay. he looks he looks better he looks more comfortable in the new video but he's not throwing as hard and so then the question mark is like, okay, what do we need to, to give this guy? What do we need to take away? And so this is just part of the process. So, you know, with, with baseball, it's pretty, pretty simple at times where you can just use velocity as, as one of your KPIs. And then you say, well, how do we get this guy back up to, to his previous level of velocity? It's like, well, we might have to change something because he's a little different now, you know, because the constraints have changed to some degree, right? Because of, because of, a, a, because of a surgery. Right. But this guy's, you know, the, like the numbers that you threw up are not unusual when, when you see mm -hmm. some somebody that's that's dealing with a performance related strategy. 
right? But again, it's like the, the, my, my greatest concern with this is that we don't, we don't compare them to the average because we don't want average. We want something else in most cases. Doesn't mean that in every case, you know, there might be somebody that can, that's cool as a cucumber and can, you know, calm his system down anytime he wants. You know, I had a high level soccer player in, in the purple room here once and uh, he was so cool and chilled out. I thought he was going to fall asleep. <laughs> You know, because I've interacted I had like one or two patients like that, like during treatment. I'm like, are you going to fall asleep on the table here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, exactly. no uh, nervous yeah. system arousal, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, cool. Um, okay, so move him left and then back. And I can right, because, because so, so you got to think about this from a structural standpoint. So when you see this, this end game representation and you can see it in the numbers, right? You can see that he went, he went, he, he got pushed forward first. So he's, he's on a very, very flat turn and then he just kept going forward. Sure. He hit an anterior constraint where he, he couldn't go forward anymore. So he had to slide over top of his right leg. So that's the direction that he went. So it went boom, boom. Sure. So you got to reverse gears. You go boom. Okay. Let's say uh, if I only if I took him straight back without taking him left, would that produce something like a right turn then? No. So so I'm I'm sitting on a on a rolling stool, okay, that pivots. So so if you try to take him straight back, right, all you're gonna do is get this, right? So get so, a left. So you don't get relative motion. You just get an orientation out of it. Gotcha. Okay. You see it? Yeah. He's he's pushed forward. He's ready. He's ready to pivot. Like he can pivot around his right leg. Right? But it's okay. but it's like you got a stick in the ground and then it's just a rotation around that stick. It's like what you want if if you're if you're trying to recapture the relative motions, is I gotta bring him back to it's like so he's off center. So he's over to the right. Bring him back, and now you can bring him straight back. And then you're capture the relative motions. You see okay. it? So you're yeah. probably looking at you're probably look because of the amount of motion that he does have available to him, you're probably looking at some sort of like a like a short staggered stance kind of an activity first kind of a thing. Okay. Uh, depending on depending on on uh, what he can recapture on his feet, you might have to take him to the ground and and you know, like an arm bar series or something like that. Um, depending on how far back you need to go, then then it becomes a cross connect or something like that. It's like starting him at the high level. He's a performer. If he's not broken, you know, then then I would treat him like an athlete first and see what you can recapture that way. And then just regress as much as you need to to capture what you think you need to recapture. Okay. And I guess I just want clarification on bringing him left. In my head, I, I have... Is that in the imaginary frontal plane? Is this a turn to the left? It's not a. It's not a. It's not a turn because because his center of gravity went forward and to the right. So you got to bring the center of gravity back to the left. Okay. He's uh, pushing. Okay. He's pushing right to left. It could be some, it, it could be something as simple as a as a, uh, a, a left uh, crossover step um, with a sled drag. Gotcha. That might be, that might be enough to do it. Okay. You see, what I'm, you see what I'm getting at? It's like you just yeah. gotta push him that. You just gotta push him that way, and then he'll start to he'll start to make his turn. And the turn is where the relative motion is. 
but you've got to, you first have to get him into a place where he can actually capture relative motion because right now you've got a you've got an ap compression and you've got a pretty hard push to the right it's like okay just reverse reverse engineer gotcha okay um i appreciate that one next uh -huh. not this is not a chessboard i'm going to give you like general qualities of this person i think uh -huh. i've seen videos of you provide solutions in those scenarios so <laughs> seven year old male wide isa Wait, 70 70? 70 yes okay different different person not the basketball <laughs> i i didn't figure <laughs> <laughs> um seven year old male wide isa so he has pain around uh both like sacral ala like on the lateral aspect of both worse on the left lumbar fusion l3 to l5 absolutely zero hip interrotation hip yeah. flexion stopped at like maybe 80 degrees slr was at like 45 um not much abduction uh -huh. hip er on both sides actually wasn't too bad i like if i remember correctly like between 60 and 70 um but just like overall stiff and yeah. just pretty crippling pain in the sacrum there. And I imagine that was just kind of his last compressive strategy in your he's a, lens. Yeah, he's got, he's got, a, he's got another one. He's got another one up in the thorax most likely. So, so here's what, here's where you're dealing with. So um, where do you, when you measure hip ER. Okay. Where do you think that's coming from? Uh, the entire pelvis rolling. Yeah. So, so, so they fused this lumbar spine. So you have no compensatory yeah. strategy there. Right. Okay. Yeah. And, and so, so, um, when you're measuring hip ER, like, first of all, he's, he's a wide ISA. So right away you're thinking I should have a deficit in hip ER. He doesn't have a deficit in hip ER, which means that you've got a lot of stuff that's moving together. Okay. okay. So you've got to You've got a compressive strategy in the pelvis. The pelvis is moving as a single unit. So take the ilia, jam them together, lock the sacrum into place, and then lock the lumbar spine into place. Just moving as a big. Where's block. the next space? Where's the next space above the lumbar spine where you got movement? Thorax, but T eleven twelve. Yeah. Right. So he's probably rotating there. So he's probably rotating there when you're measuring hip ER. Right. So so you're you're right. It's like it's like. All he's got is a is a like a sacrum that's just getting compressed between the 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 two ilia at this point, right? So the pressure just builds, builds, and builds, right? Mm. He gets pushed forward, 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 right? So now you got to start thinking. It's like, okay, where can I make space? Can't use lumbar spine compensatory strategies. Not moving the sacrum at all, right? So yeah. you're going to create. You're going to have to create some some form of of AP expansion. Right. So he's a side liar. He's going to be a guy that you can usually get a lot of manual therapy on to get the rib cage to move, to get the pelvis to move. Yeah, I've been having. So the treatment I've been doing with him so far. Yeah. Side lying, just taking the foam roller between the thighs and just trying to roll the femurs back and forth. He's at 90 degrees of hip flexion, which probably, as we were talking, is comp obviously is compensatory if he's in a range of well, motion. 
as you're shifting, it, as you're shifting, if he's able to actually roll through the pelvis, you're 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 rolling him on a helical angle. You're okay. It's just that the, you're starting him from midline, so you're starting him at middle P, and then you're rolling him in and out. So he's actually doing this as he shifts. Okay, so so you're probably okay there. The problem that you're going to run into though is that you don't have enough pressure laterally to create the the anterior expansion, right? So you're going to you're going to expand. You're going to expand the the available turn. It's just not going to be big enough. So you've got to go up into the thorax. You've got a thorax that's not moving either. Okay, you've heard me talk about dynamic ISAs, right? Uh, once or twice. Okay. <laughs> so you need, to, you need a dynamic ISA to to because if he's not turning up here, you could spend all day on his side and 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 you're not going to get anything, right? You're okay. going to have to you're going to have to teach him to, to move his rib cage, right? Because he's got to reorient the helical angles to make a turn. And if he can't do that, he's not doing it through the pelvis and he's not going to do it through the thorax. And again, he's just locked into one piece. Does that make sense? It does. Okay. So I had him like, dude, I hate to say this. <sighs> all right. You're no out worries. of time. <laughs> it's okay. No it's all right. We're out of time. We can, uh, we can, we can pick this up later. It's not pinching the, 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 the glutes together as if yeah. you're trying to, to, to hide a, a, a quarter between your butt cheeks. Good morning, happy Tuesday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. Mm, that is really good. Okay, quick housekeeping. Uh, the intensive 14, we have set the dates for the intensive 14. That will be August 19th through the 22nd. Um, we'll probably start application process somewhere late next week or so for that. Remember, we get to choose eight people to come. Um, so that's how many people fit in the purple room. And it also keeps it very tight and intense, if you will. So um, again, save those dates and be looking for that. Today's Q&A is with Leo, and Leo had some questions in regards to some hip range of motion um, measures that, that he was bumping into with some of his, his uh, patients, and this led us into the three impingement concepts. So the three impingements of the shoulder, three impingements of the hip, very, very similar. Um, for those of you that would like to go beyond today's Q&A in, re in regards to those impingement representations, um, I have two videos on the YouTube channel for those, one for three impingements of the hip and one for three impingements of the shoulder. So you'll see how those old school impingement tests um, that we were taught um, actually become positive and then some rationale and some approaches as to how to alleviate those situations. So again, I'm gonna, I think you're gonna find this, this Q&A useful today. If you would like to participate in a 15 minute consultation, um, these are free of charge, by the way. I don't know if I've ever mentioned that. Um, but it's it's just to uh, to help everybody out. Um, so if you'd like to participate in in a Q and A, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and we will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Um, just remember to put 15 minute consult in the subject line so I don't delete it. Everybody have an outstanding Tuesday. I will see you all tomorrow. Okay, we are recording. Clock has started. What is your question, young man? So my question. So I'm pretty new to. Uh... I guess your your methodology of things. So I've kind of picked up bits and pieces of it, uh, just watching what you put on YouTube. Um, gotcha. So so there were a couple of um, 
short clips that I saw. I think it was a seminar you were doing. I don't know if it was at IFAST, but it was with, a, I believe he was a power lifter. So uh -huh. Yeah, that was here. Uh -huh. Yeah. And um, so uh, I saw you put him in a couple positions and basically trying to improve, I think it was hip flexion and shoulder internal rotation. Yeah. Um, so I guess my question and what I put in the email was basically about, you know, I work in a pretty busy private practice yeah. and trying to come up with different ways just to make the exercise intervention, you know, as effective as it can possibly be. Yes, sir. So kind of just some big pillars and things that I can have in the back of my mind in terms of positions that can help influence some of the big things that we see in clinic. So like common one in, in, um, in clinic for shoulder issues is usually a very restricted um, internal rotation. And then typically for the hip is hip flexion where people come in and they get, you know, a lot of pinchy sort of sensations in the hip. And, right. and those are like two very common deficits. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So hang on <clears throat> real, real quick. There's two videos on YouTube that are going to be really, really helpful. Okay. And these are the three impingement. So there's three impingements for the hip and three impingements for the shoulder. Okay. Okay. And, and what I do is I go through the old school impingement tests. So the Hawkins Kennedy uh, painful arc and then the end range impingement, because each one of those is representative of a compressive strategy in, in different areas. Okay. So when you're talking about somebody that comes in with, with limited uh, internal rotation of the shoulder, like, you know, the positive Hawkins Kennedy kind of thing. Okay. So under those circumstances, what you're lacking is, you're lacking the early range um, shoulder external rotation measure, which, which would fall into the category of, of say early uh, traditional shoulder flexion. Okay, but it's an ER, it's an ER measure. So when you have a posterior lower compressive strategy, so they have they have compression below the level of the scapula on the on the posterior aspect. Okay, what happens is is that external rotation that would typically typically be in this area is now out there. It's away from midline. So the compression takes away that range. So what happens is, is they're moving into internal rotation where they should be able to externally rotate. So what happens is they literally run out of space as they move up because this becomes more, more anterior expansion, posterior compression as I reach into this space, which compresses it even farther. So they, they literally run out of space. There is no more space for the shoulder to even move. Okay. Right. Yep. So what you need to do then is you need to restore the ability to expand below the level of, of the scapula. I got a whole bunch of stuff um, um, for that. If you look at, um, at some of the uh, like the better band pull apart is actually one of those exercises that's going to help with that. Um, there's a seated version of that as well. Um, but but again, anything that's going to promote the the expansive strategy below the level of the scapula is going to allow you to recapture that early flexion. So your hip people that are they run out of hip flexion, it's the same thing. It's same exactly thing. the same thing. Now, you got to start thinking about um, like where the pelvis is going to be oriented. So so in both cases, 
when we have this 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 uh, posterior compressor strategy, you're going to get an anterior orientation of the thorax. You're going to get an anterior orientation uh, of the pelvis. You have to reorient that first. So that's that's creating that 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 posterior orientation, right? And then creating the expansion. So when we talk about expansion on the backside of the pelvis. Um, especially you know, we, we, the, we have a great representation of that at the sacrum with counternutation. So I need to be able to recapture counternutation. Well, but that requires that I reduce the anterior orientation first because it, when the pelvis anterior orients or when the thorax anterior orients, everything's moving as a single unit. I no longer have relative motion between the scapula and the thorax or the ilium and the sacrum. So I got to get into a, a position where I can start to recapture that first. So first strategy under all of these circumstances is, is creating the, the, the reorientation where I'm, I'm no longer using the anti-orientation, which is an IR position, right? So, so IR, you probably heard me say this, is that intra-orientation is a downward force, right? Yeah. Yep. Okay. So yep. that means that the pelvis has to dump forward and push down. It's like, I got to rotate it back so I can expand upward. Does that right. make so, sense? Yeah. So would that be something, like, depending on what the person can tolerate, would that be something as simple as having, uh, so like in a quadruped position, if someone can kind of dissociate the pelvis into like a, a lumbar specific cat cow and then breathe into that, would that you gotta be really, really careful with, <clears throat> you gotta be really, really careful with, with that, that type of an exercise because there's a tremendous amount of substituting that can go on there. Right. So if you get somebody that that is just bending the spine, so think about think about somebody that's using a rectus abdominis to pull a sternum and a pubis closer together, that yeah. would be the exact wrong thing to do. Okay. All right. So what you want, the way I always describe it to people is um, imagine you got on your favorite pair of blue jeans and somebody's grabbing a hold of your back pockets and pulling down on them. That's the direction that we're talking about. So it's right. not pinching, it's not pinching the, 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 the glutes together as if yeah. you're trying to, to, to hide a, a, a quarter between your butt cheeks, right? So you, it's never that kind of a squeeze. It's a posterior orientation. So what you got is you, and if we wanted to talk about musculature, you've got some adductor activity along with the, the posterior hip musculature that's gonna create this posterior orientation, okay? Right. So you could do this in any number of positions. You can do it in, in a, a, you could put somebody's hands on a chair and teach them how to do it in standing. You can lay them down. You can put them in a, a, a hook lying position. You've probably seen my cross connect video. You can, do, you can do variations of that. All of that stuff is gonna start to bring the pelvis into its posterior orientation, okay? okay. Gotta do that first because I gotta create, I gotta create a position where the sacrum is free to turn and, and if I am compressed and anteriorly oriented, there is no sacrum turning. The pelvis is turning as a, as a single unit under those circumstances, no relative motions available in the pelvis. Okay. So okay. With, the, with the sacral position, when you're trying to determine what that is for an individual, yes. is, part, is part of that coming from their um, ISA position? Yes. And, yes. and, then, and then secondary to that, um, do you use do you use the position of the lumbar spine as well to give you an indication as to what that new patient is going to be? So if someone is like hyperlordotic or or a little bit flatter through the lumbar, in addition to the ISA measure. Okay, so let's just talk about one at a time. How about that? All right. So my IPA and my ISA are reflective of one another, right? So when I get a wide ISA individual, I got somebody that's biased towards the wide IPA, right? Yeah. 
And so this is, this is the anominate bones being internally rotated on a nutated sacrum. This is, this is no turn land, right? right. This is actually where I'll, where I'll find a lot of my high performance people because they need to create such high forces and, and pressures into the ground. I don't want to, I don't want to dissipate the force. I want to, I want to magnify it. And so then they use this, this position a lot. So when you get a wide ISA individual in your, in your office, this is your representation. So what's going to go with this is if I've got a nutated sacrum, what I'm going to see is I'm going to see more internal rotation produced in the lumbar spine. So that would be traditional uh, representation of extension. So anything that's extension is internal rotation, right? So I see a magnification of that. And so I can, I can make some predictions off of that one simple measure of the ISA and say, okay, this individual is going to be biased towards certain strategies. And then mm -hmm. I can start to work from there. Does that, does that answer that question? Yes. Okay. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Because so, so sometimes, sometimes there's things that you're going to be able to see that are visual and they, they are, they are supportive of your findings. And then there's sometimes where you just can't trust, trust your eyes. Okay. Yeah. Under, I, under most circumstances, sorry, under most circumstances with the nutated sacrum, you're going to see, you're going to see an, an IR lumbar spine. Okay. Okay. Yeah, because it's just in a couple of the videos, you kind of, um, when you're answering these people's questions, you kind of come back to, um, I, I kind of forget how you refer to it, but basically in a, in a perfect world in terms of what you would expect to see with a, a wider or narrow ISA at the extremes. So okay. I was just curious if you had any secondary measures that you use to try and confirm what you expect, you know, with regard to the the sacrum, for example. Sure. Well, okay. So, so, so let's just, let's just build this out a little bit as far as expectations go. Right. So, so under any normal circumstance, if I have a nutated representation of the sacrum, I have, I have an, an ileal representation that's going to follow. So the ileum are going to be IR that brings the anomaly into IR. Okay. And that changes the orientation of the acetabulum. So the acetabulum is going to move up and forward. So that's an inverted representation of the acetabulum. So my expectation there is I'm going to pick up some internal rotation capabilities in the hip and I'm going to lose some ER representation. Yeah. So, okay. So right away I have this foundational representation of, of what I should expect um, structurally as far as their bias is concerned. And remember, it's always a bias because both ERs and IRs are always there. It's just, how are they producing them? Right? Right. So, so if I have you know, if I have somebody that, and again, you'll never see this guy. So, but I'm using it as a representation. If I have a wide ISA individual that, that has full breathing excursion, I'm going to see, I might see a bias towards a little bit more intra rotation and a little less extra rotation, but he's still going to have some, some pretty decent movement capabilities where you're going to approach like the total motion representation is probably going to be about average. Yeah. Right? And, and so again, it's like, you gotta, you gotta consider that, that guy, like I said, we never get to see him because we don't see those people that, that have full movement capabilities because when they do, they tend to feel pretty good, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. But, it, but at least you can start to create the bias. And so then this is going to translate up, up into the axial skeleton and down into the feet because it, it, it has to, because I've got these iterative aspects to, to anatomy. So the upper thorax and the pelvis tend to behave the same. The, the, the foot is going to be oriented in a certain way based on center of gravity. And so I have a center of gravity shift that's associated with the nutation, right? So that's going to drive my center of gravity forward. So I should expect to see, expect to see the arch moving down towards the ground as they're translating the tibia forward over the foot. So again, it's right. like you have these, these nice little, little representations. Now, there's a lot of other strategies that can be superimposed on that, 
but at least we have this foundational representation from which we can start to work. And we say, okay, this guy started in middle propulsion. So he's like literally right over his feet. And then I shifted the center of gravity forward. What should my expectations be under those circumstances? And then that's where you start to see the changes in the, in the uh, average ranges of motion start to disappear. When I start to get superficial stuff uh, laid on top of this, we're gonna start to lose more and more ranges of motion because we've taken away turns that we need to create these ranges of motion. Right, right. Okay. Does, that, does that provide you an element of, of, of understanding? Because I know I, I, I'm talking fast because we only have a little bit of time. <laughs> yes, no, it gives me something to go off of for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then, you know, your narrows would be the opposing strategy. So they're gonna be the ER bias, they're gonna be the retroverted acetabulum, right? And then yeah. you're gonna see early or late representations, depending on how far they are into these, these strategies, they're gonna be biased towards ERs. Yeah. Yeah. But it, does that help you? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Good. Yeah, that'll give me a little bit more. We got two minutes. <laughs> two minutes, okay. Yeah. Um, so I guess my next question would be actually more with regard to uh, assessment and this this can be quick, but um, like I know, I know you've mentioned um, uh, Diane Lee in, in previous videos about her uh, thorax and, and pelvis. Yeah, she's got great, she, the, the books are great for the mechanics. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And, um, at a previous clinic I worked at, um, a number of the practitioners had done her integrated systems model training and they kind of used that. Uh -huh. So her big thing is, is uh, you know, trying to find the individual's driver that influences their task. So I was wondering for you, how, how caught up do you get in, in, in a person's, you know, injury history and, and things like that uh, with that kind of guiding your, your assessment or your treatment, or do you just go off what you see and what you find and, and, what, and see how you can influence that? Yeah. So the injury history can provide you um, a little bit of an understanding of a previous strategy. There right. might be a constraint change that's an influence. So as soon as you change the constraint, you have now just altered the, the movement options. So it's, it's always a factor, but ultimately what you're going to, what you're going to use for your, your primary frame of reference is what, like if you, if you do table tests, you're going to use your, <clears throat> you're going to use your chessboard that you're measuring off the table. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be what you're going to, what you're going to use to make your first decisions, your interventions, and then determine what your KPIs are going to be. Right. Um, but again, if I had somebody that came in and they said, well, I had a bank cart repair and I never got my shoulder motion back. It's like, okay, I got to start thinking about that as a possible change in constraint that's For now sure. going to influence every decision that I make. So it's always on the table, so to speak, to make a pun. Yeah. It's always on the table, right? It's always in the back of your head. You just have to decide how important it is. Right. All right, okay. man, we are officially out of time. Okay. Great to meet you. If you get another well, question. Bill. If you got another question, let me know. We can always set up another one, okay? Okay, thanks so much. All right, man, have a great day. You too. Bye for now. Because the center of gravity is always going to go forward. You can't go backwards. We all know that there's no backwards. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand, and it is perfect. Okay. Well, happy Wednesday. Uh, it's Wednesday, so that means that tomorrow is Thursday, which means 6 a.m. tomorrow morning, the Coffee and Coaches Conference call, as usual, as we have done for over the last year. So if you haven't joined us, please join us. Great group of people, great questions, solving problems, um, always fun. 
Speaking of the Coffee and Coaches Conference Call, today's Q&A is with Cameron. So Cameron's a frequenter of the Coffee and Coaches Conference Call. And we dug into some public orientation stuff. So this is actually some really, really good foundational information in regards to, to the anti-orientation representation, how the superficial strategies will influence this. Um, we talked a little bit about strategy in, in a specific case uh, situation, which moved us into a little bit talking about this, this later representation of, of the propulsive foot. Um, so again, really, really good foundational information. I think it's gonna help a lot of people. If you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it, and we'll arrange that at our mutual convenience. I hope you have an outstanding Wednesday. We'll see you tomorrow morning, 6 a.m., Coffee and Coaches Conference Call. Have a great day. Okay, we are being recorded. The clock has started. Cameron, fire away. Okay. Um, so, sorry, that's a the volume up a little higher. I um uh, I guess I had kind of a two-part question. I, I suppose the first part's kind of vague. Um uh, and then I'll kind of give you a for an instance. So I guess I was kind of wondering what sort of the like the anterior sort of uh, pelvic orientation strategy uh, and kind of the relationship what that is with like the posterior lower sort of as people get closer to an end game strategy. Uh-huh. Is that is the anterior orientation just like an earlier uh, sort of like earlier in the sequence of a compression strategy that 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 someone will use? They'll say in like a narrow ISA. Um, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. So okay, so when you think about uh, uh, how the superficial stuff is laid on, mm -hmm. what we're doing is we're creating. Uh, changes in the ability to produce the, the downward force, all right? So, so anything that, that you lay on that's superficially driven is going to be an exhalation strategy. So it's going to squeeze you harder. It's going to create more, more compression, mm -hmm. right? And, and it's typically going to be associated with trying to produce more force downward, okay? So yeah. it's an IR representation. It's, I, I have that my pelvis sitting right here, yeah. nice. okay? So when I take this, so... Well, we, we sort of have this little cutoff line here, right right through the, the, the ischium there uh, at the top of the, the acetabulum. So, so that's where I sort of make my cutoff in, in discussion purposes. So I have musculature that's right here that's gonna create this, this posterior compression and drive. It, when we're talking about the sacrum, it's gonna push the sacrum that way, right? And we're gonna see the same thing in the thorax getting pushed forward. And so if it's above the axis of rotation and I push this forward, it does that. Got okay. It. So it pushes down. This is down, right? So anytime right. I see something that goes that way. So my anti-orientation is, is me trying to push that internal rotation downward. Okay? okay. Does that help you? Yeah. So that would be more of a, like associated with the, so it, as of like the compression strategy would be above the level of the greater trochanter, I guess would often end up in kind of the space orientation of more of an anterior sort of pelvis orientation. You don't really have a, you don't really have a choice because when you think about the, when you think about the anterior musculature, so, so yeah. the anterior musculature is here, yeah. right? Okay. So if I start pushing here and this goes forward and then I push back here, look, mm. it, it kind of, it's kind of like this perfect storm right? right? to, to okay. create this downward force and then the orientation. 
and like I said, you're just going to see the same thing happening in the in the thorax. Okay. Yeah, that clears it up. Okay. Let's talk about posterior lower, though. Can we do that? Yeah. Okay. Because you mentioned it. All right. Yeah. All right. So here's what's going to happen. So we got to go through space time, right? So I start okay. pushing here. I'm pushing this forward. Yeah. Right. This pushes back, and then I keep going forward. Right. My my center of gravity is going to go forward under these circumstances. Mm -hmm. So eventually. I'm going to see that where the, the pelvis is moving through space in that direction over the femur. So I'm going to fix the femur to the ground through the foot as a representation, right? So yep. now I got this musculature down here. The mm -hmm. farther forward that I go, this is going to be able to pick up concentric orientation. Right. Okay. So that, and then that creates compression in the posterior lower aspect. That's how you start to pick that up. So if we were looking at, say, a wide ISA representation, mm -hmm. right? Because typically under those circumstances, I'm going to have a nutated sacrum, which is going to give me eccentric orientation of that posterior lower aspect. But right. if I keep pushing things forward and forward and forward, again, I start to pick up concentric orientation here, and then I start to bend this, this sacrum up underneath. So that's that's a one of my favorite representations to understand how you pick up this stuff. Right, because all it is is I, I'm moving the two ends of a of a of a muscle, muscle, right, right. <laughs> um, closer and closer together. So it picks up concentric orientation. So that's a compressive strategy. So, so you inc slowly increase the amount of compression that you can apply in that area because the center of gravity is always going to go forward. You can't go backwards. We all know that there's no backwards. Right. Right. Just doesn't yeah. happen. And so you're always going to go in that in that anterior direction. So I guess staying, staying on that topic then, um, let's say if like for an instance type situation or have someone um, maybe kind of presents where they're on that sort of right oblique angle and then, and then they've been pushed forward far enough at that point. So now they've got a loss of, you know, early hip flexion, ER, IR, greater, much greater on like, let's say the right side than the left side. In regards to which? um uh, the hip uh which when you say greater you you were mentioning ranges of motion so oh sorry sorry ranges of motion so so like so like both both hip er and ir yeah like, so if they start or, okay i understand now yeah if, they, okay. if, if you got if you got somebody that started on a right oblique that loses hip ir they're getting pushed way forward yeah way so and that's it i guess i've uh I've been, uh, and, and uh, maybe I'm getting too deep into it, but how much do I kind of need to pay attention to like the internal precision forces? Of, well, they're uh, there. That's what's driving the yeah. show, right? And that's yeah. why all those strategies exist in the first place mm -hmm. is to control the forces. Yeah. Right. So, so if I'm trying to like increase, if I'm trying to give someone some like early, let's say like early hip flexion, on yep. that right side. On the right side? Okay. On the right side. Okay, let me help you. Let me help yeah. you. Yeah. All right. What direction did they move first? They they moved to the right first. They moved on the oblique to the right. On the oblique, yeah, the up and over okay. for that relative. And then what direction did they go? To lose to lose the early hip flexion, straight leg raise, and internal rotation. What did they lose? What what direction did they go then? Forward. Okay. So if you were going to reverse engineer this whole process, which direction would you move them first? Backward. Yeah. So straight back and then back on the oblique. There you go. Okay. This is 
This because everybody's going to end up in the same place. Yeah. Generally speaking. Generally. Okay. Right. Because we're all dealing with the same forces. Right. So we're all going to try to end up in the same place. It's just like, how did you get there? So we have different starting conditions. So we, if we look at if we look at my wide ISA archetype and we look at my narrow ISA archetype, those are just different starting conditions. Forces being the same, they're just going to behave a little bit differently. But ultimately, because it's the same force, they're going to manage it very similarly as they start to lose capabilities, right? Yeah. So they all start with different strategies, but they're going to end with the same one because everything everything gets narrower and narrower and narrower as far as like what's available to you. So if I start with this big of a space to move yeah. in, right? And then yeah. I start to start to battle whatever it is, you know, internally and externally from a force standpoint, mm -hmm. I slowly squeeze everything in. Now my movement capabilities are here, right? And that's going to happen to both archetypes. But because the starting conditions are different, things drop off at a little bit different sequence. But ultimately, at end game, they're going to measure very similarly. And that, so then say we went down to the to the foot, because that was kind of where I was uh, sort of trying to piece together that that what we were just talking about to what the foot representation would be. Uh -huh. So in that case, would it would it look like that? Um, so we get closer to that sort of end game situation where someone's pushed far enough forward that their foot presentation would probably look a little bit more like either the high arch type person or the foot turned out because yeah. they're, and so and that's why you would say you've got to get them to early propulsion first. Right. Because so, so it's an ER representation. So, so remember a late propulsive foot is mm -hmm. the, is the re external rotation Right. Yeah. Stuff, yeah. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah. Right. And but because the center of gravity is not far enough forward, the heel is still on the ground. So it mm -hmm. pulls the arch back up and then I bring the toes back underneath. So the muscles that would typically lift the heel mm -hmm. uh, in a late, a normal late propulsive representation can't lift the heel because center of gravity is not far enough forward yet. And so it reverses gears and then it it's dead guy anatomy 101. What yeah. what what do these what do these muscles do based on their name? It's like, well, they're toe bender muscles. And mm -hmm. so I got I got short toe extensors on top. I got I got uh, long toe flexors on the bottom, and I get this clawed representation of the toes. That's why you see that is because that's somebody that's trying to get up and over the front of their foot and they can't do it because their center of gravity is too far back. So it just grabs and pulls. So that would be that that the airplane wing sort of situation you're talking about, where like got the high pressure underneath. That's the concentric overcoming in that yes. situation. Okay. Yes. Yes. Um. All right. Perfect. This clearing a bunch of little stuff up for me. Good. Um. Yeah. Five. Guess, minutes. So, <laughs> five minutes. Five minutes. Oh, perfect. So then. I guess kind of there's one exercise that you had put up a, quite a while ago. And then I saw, um, I was following uh, Mike Campanini and he, he uh, had executed this exercise where the one it was more for like a, a wide SA individual. And, um, and they're trying to regain, you're trying to regain hip internal rotation with the bands around the knees. And you went into the, and toward, towards the deep squat. Deep squat. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So I guess for my interpretation, it was like, you're going out to try to force IR to try to create that concentric. Yeah. Okay. So you're not pushing out. 
So you're still not so so even in that white sitting, it's still it's still not a push out. It's still you're just not, you're not pushing out. Okay. You're trying to reduce the okay. So the muscles above the trochanter, yeah. as the pelvis becomes anteriorly oriented, they become internal rotator muscles, right? right. They change their direction of pull. Mm -hmm. Right. So for me to sit down into a deep squat, I'm trying to catch and capture an ER representation, early propulsive representation of that pelvis. Mm -hmm. So if that musculature is concentrically oriented, the chances of me capturing an early representation of the pelvis in the bottom of deep squat are slim to none. So what I'm doing is I'm fixing the femur mm -hmm. with, the, with, the, with the, the force of external rotation against the band, but I don't want to push it apart because if I push it apart, all I'm doing is creating the posterior lower compression and I'm orienting the, the, the femurs into ER. I want to capture relative motions in the pelvis. So what I have is I have a, a stimulus that that band stimulus mm -hmm. creates the ER moment that makes the uh, musculature above the trochanter eccentrically orient as I descend into the deep squat. Then I superimpose the inhalation on top of that. And I get this nice little early representation at the bottom of the deep squat. That's what that's for. Because if you that watch the sequence, yeah. You watch the sequencing. So you start in a late propulsive representation at the top of the squat. You've, mm -hmm. got, you've got the foot elevated on a platform, okay, with toes in line with the forefoot, okay? So it's not, it's not the late representation. Just right. elevating the heels doesn't do it. You need the platform to do this, okay? Yeah. Right? And so um, as I descend, you, you descend it with an exhale till you get through the, the sticking point where you would be biased more towards that internal rotation. Well, that's where the pelvis is going to start to pick up that IR representation. So the musculature above the trochanter is going to be more IR biased, right? I have the band on there that's going to reduce the, the ability of those muscles to maintain their IR bias. And then I sit down below that level where I would typically recapture early representation. And I breathe in, sacrum can counter nutate. I have, I have ilia that can, that can ER under those circumstances and I capture that early representation of propulsion at the bottom of the squat. And would kind of the, uh, like an analogy to that exercise for the upper extremity be that like dorsal rostral yes. band pulled apart? Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. Yes. How much time do I have? One minute and 31 seconds. <laughs> so let's, so let's say if someone, all right, I think I can do this quick. So let's say it's been a session, they, they've regained some semblance, even if it's, you know, of, of internal rotation at that point. Uh, let's say for like, you know, our, our younger, you know, population or, or doesn't have to be younger, but just anyone that's more of our, that, that wants to be active in that case. So if I want to kind of use that range, would that be now, um, let's say if I want to start to use like a change in tempo, would that be more of like, so now I want to, be able to drop quick and have that heavy exhale to grab that concentric orientation and use what they just got. Yeah, you could, you, you can do that. You can do that. And you're also influencing connective tissue behavior into the overcoming action as well. So you're getting a lot of stiffness, mm -hmm. right? And, and so, yes, you can. So, so we'll start to do that too. You can actually, I do that with my patients all the time. They don't recognize it. Um, yeah. of course, but, but yeah, you can definitely do that. Okay. Yeah. There's nothing wrong. Right. Like the forces matter. The forces matter. Like, like going quickly or going slowly does matter. 
if I'm trying to create an expansive strategy, I will tend to slow the tempo down. If I'm trying to create more of a compressive strategy, overcoming action, that's a higher rate of load for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I guess that's the part where the patient population, right? I don't get, I, either I don't recognize it or I'm just, I, I, I don't have the clientele that I'm usually just working on expansion all the time for pain relief in that case. That. This is where your safe to fail experiments come into play, young man. This is yeah. how you learn. Right. right? You, as long as you understand, as long as you understand the representations, experiment, and then look at the outcomes and let that lead you. Okay. Okay. All right, man. Thanks, Gotta go. Good yeah. to see you. Yeah. Talk to you later. Once I have that capability, once I demonstrate the ability to, to, to kind of demonstrate control with the touch and go, then I might want to say, okay, I want to move you from this eccentric orientation to concentric orientation at a higher rate. Um, so I've been working on manipulating variables with the box squat and um, my, so I've been working a lot specifically on getting clients to um, actually uh, develop more overcoming qualities. And so, you know, focusing maybe a little bit more on getting them towards the sticking point and looking for indications that they're keeping a concentric pelvic diaphragm. And so I've tried a couple of different uh, breathing strategies um, besides just like a traditional breath hold because my understanding is that that can be interference when you've got somebody who's, um, who's having trouble with that sticking point. Um, and I just wanna run them by you and see if there's any thought logic in the thought process. Um, yeah. Is that okay? Okay, so, so uh, one is just getting them provided that they can start in like a neutral um, or not neutral. No, bad. Um, <laughs> oh, provided, provided provided that they can get the the um, the the standing representation right. Having them uh, just exhale as they go down on a relatively quick, um, a really qu relatively quick descent, and then and then come up. Um, and then the other is like a slow eccentric so they have to breathe the entire time because I was thinking both of those would help with uh, eliminating the breath hold and maybe helping to create the concentric pelvic diaphragm and so am, am I thinking about that in any coherent way or is that yes yes but um okay okay so let's let's think this through for a sec so so one of the problems that you run into if when when you're actually breathing under load um, is, is that you're going to get, um, technically speaking, more relative motion. Okay. And so you got to be really, really careful as to um, the timing of things. And, and one of the things that you, you need to recognize is that if somebody's doing a breath hold, okay, that is an exhalation strategy. Okay. So the reason the air is not coming out is because you're cutting it off right at the glottis. And so then you're going to create that internal pressure and it'll be an exhalation strategy. So you don't have to, to, to physically exhale per se. Um, and when you're trying to create the, and I'm assuming you're trying to make a concentric overcoming situation. Yes. Okay. Um, under those circumstances, because it, it sort of complicates that, especially when you're playing with something where the force production is a little bit higher. Like when we're talking about like the 
you know, the heels elevated goblet squat that we would use to try to recapture relative motion there. We want to make sure that we're, that we're breathing through the excursion in your situation. I'm, I'm, and again, I'm, I wasn't there, so I can't speak yeah. with great intelligence here, but, but the thing that, that I would say is that if you're, if you're trying to get concentric overcoming, the breath hold is going to be okay because that's literally going to create the, the higher internal pressure and it'll help maintain the concentric orientation. Um, of the uh, the outlet, and then it's just a matter of of superimposing the rate or load as you are on top of of that. So so again, it, it, depending on what the goal is, and and in this case, it, it's you're trying to limit the relative movement. Would be my my understanding. Am I correct? Yeah. Well, because because I noticed that I noticed that with people who who seem to have. Uh, trouble with the internal rotation and overcoming that um through that the middle of the squat that's when they deviate the knees outward that's yeah. when the that's when they get you know traditional extension of the lumbar spine and all of that and so my thought process was at least for the lighter sets i guess i should clarify that that um an exhale could at least like limit the volume right that yeah. is, it is being presented internally and then lead to maybe using a breath hold strategy uh when there's some weight involved, right? Because because okay. then it's yeah. I think I think that 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 clarifies it to to a much greater degree for sure. Okay. Like if if you're going to add speed or you're going to add load, again, just from a an execution standpoint, it's much easier to to take the breath and then compress that versus okay. versus the active exhalation. But if 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 you're not under load and you're just trying to cue the fact that I need I need an exhalation strategy and they don't really have a good one, like they're they're not used to producing pressure, then I'm totally cool with that. Okay. And then and then one more question. So I I was I was thinking this through in um in terms of again the same type of person we're trying to create the concentric pelvic diaphragm or maintain it. Mm -hmm. Um and there's two sort of general strategies as far as I can tell one is to is to you know get somebody to kind of sit to the box and then be able to create that that pressure off of the box right so right. so dissipate the forces and then uh, yep. create that pressure off the box yep. and then one that I haven't seen you really use that seems plausible um, is having them just use the box purely as a constraint so that they're they're actually not they're, they're making sure that they're not just sitting back to the box and that they're actually creating pressure as they go down, the knees are going forwards. So I, I'm wondering like, are there- like a touch and go? Like, yeah, like a touch and go where you're really, you're just like using it as a constraint to make sure that your your knees are going forward a little bit yeah. and you're not just sitting back. Um, So yeah. what would you think about the, the relative application of those two, um, those okay. two methods? Okay. So, so here's how I would look at that. Are you trying to capture a capability or are you trying to train their ability to use that ability, that capability faster? So, so if you had somebody that was struggling to, to capture the concentric orientation, the slower descent um, and, and touch and go strategy is probably the better way to go because it does maintain it from the, from the beginning of the squat, right? So there's a limited amount of eccentric orientation, 
right? Because I'm maintaining some measure of internal pressure throughout and I'm not releasing any, any tension onto the box that would create the yield or, or any measure of eccentric orientation, okay? Once I have that capability, once I demonstrate the ability to, to, to kind of demonstrate control with the touch and go, then I might wanna say, okay, I wanna move you from this eccentric orientation to concentric orientation at a higher rate. And in that case, now you're gonna deload to the box and you're gonna to try to pop off the box. Do you see the difference in the two? Where one is yeah. like sustained and the other one is like release and then recapture. Okay, so, so it's a question of um, whether you already have that position or whether you're trying to strengthen yes. that position. Yeah. It's, like, it's like on one end, it's like the, 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 my first goal is I got to be able to capture the concentric orientation of the outlet. On the second one, it's like how fast can I capture the concentric orientation of the outlet, right? Okay, cool. That, that, yeah, that helps a lot. Good. Yeah, and, and and so so Andrew, this is actually a big deal. So I, I see a, a fair number of, of uh, females that would have an issue with with outlet control, and and um, this is this is like how you have to do it. You have to teach them the sustained element first because they don't they don't even have this high pressure strategy at all. And so for me to say sit down in the box and pop off, it's like ah. You know, it's very hit and miss as far as your success rate goes. But when you teach them to touch and go first, and then they understand, it's like, oh, this is where the high pressure is. This is how I manage this. Then it's much easier to superimpose the great stuff on top of it. Right, right. Okay, great. Thank you. Okay, so I have somebody that as she descends, she can descend quickly, but she's still not capable of, of turning the eccentric to concentric fast enough. Good morning, happy Friday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, well, I'm kind of fired up. Um, noon Eastern today, um, IFAS University members only. Uh, Mike Robertson and I will be on the same call. Um, this, is a, this is a bonus call for you guys that we've been thinking about for a while. And uh, so please join us. If you haven't signed up for IFS University, go to ifsuniversity.com so you can join us at 12 noon today. Okay, diving into today's Q&A. This is two, two segments from yesterday's uh, Coffee and Coaches Conference call. We had a similar situation show up in, in two different contexts. And it, it was regarding the pelvic outlet behavior. One of the things that we have to think about when we're talking about vertical jumps or when we talk about transitions in the Olympic lifts where we have um, sort of the unweighting element or the, the counter movement in a, in a vertical jump, um, the outlet behavior becomes very, very important. So the ability to transition from an eccentric to a concentric pelvic outlet, um, the ability to store and release energy via yielding and overcoming action is also very important. And so we'll see deficits in those behaviors. And so we went through two different strategies that we talked about for, for these two different contexts. So one was using a box squat and one was using an oscillatory uh, variation of, of a squat to try to resolve these things. So um, again, very useful Q&A for, for a lot of people, a lot of coaches. Um, if you would like to participate in a uh, Q&A, 15-minute consultation, uh, please go to askbillharman at gmail.com, askbillharman at gmail.com. You can get signed up there. Um, put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I do not delete it. We will arrange that at our mutual convenience. I got a bunch of those to schedule um, that in, in a backlog, um, so please be patient with those. 
Everybody have an outstanding Friday and a great weekend, and I'll see you on Monday. My question is about vertical jump. So I'm working with a young lady. Um, what she seems to do on the descent is she'll descend down into her sticking point and then she'll almost like re-descend at the bottom before she goes up. Uh -huh. um, so kind of going off of what Andrew's question was, my initial thought was, hey, we could probably use a touch and go. But what she when she jumps, she's kind of like what you said in your wide ISA video where she's a back jumper. She's a narrow ISA. So I'm still kind of confused on that. So I'm trying to figure out which intervention to throw in first in terms of like a box squat to kind of help with this. Do I need to capture the concentric overcoming first because she almost like is waiting for the guts to get down there? Okay. She's not waiting. Okay. But, but so think about this. So she descends a little bit faster than her guts, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. And then the guts hit the bottom and then she kind of double clutches. Right? So she descends and then she descends again because when the guts hit, they're pushing her down even farther. So, so the, the box squat then becomes incredibly valuable here. And literally this, the discussion that we had with Andrew becomes your strategy. It's like, oh, okay. So I have somebody that as she descends, she can descend quickly, but she's still not capable of, of turning the eccentric to concentric fast enough. And so the guts hit, she has to yield again, right? You see it? Mm -hmm. And, and so, so what you want to do then is you say, well, where do we optimize this, this position? That tells you where to set your box. And then you say, can you execute a controlled touch and go, right? Start to load that so you get concentric orientation. And then you, then you transition this to a deload onto the box and the pop up. So now she knows to stop and then come up quickly and then you slowly take the box away. So the way you take the box away is you take a pad, you take a mushy pad, you put it on the box. So she still has a, a, a sensation of depth, right? But now she has to do the controlling of the turnaround and then you eventually take that away and she does the vertical jump. You see, you say you just progressively take away the, the constraint. One quick follow-up to that would be if huh? someone like relatively speaking, she's very strong. I mean, like double body weight deadlift, like probably body weight and a half squat. She's a soccer player. Yeah. So what how does that not wouldn't she be probably more concentrically oriented in the pelvic diaphragm? So I'm I just don't know why she would do that. I mean, obviously she's not based on her okay. jump, but so okay, but but you have connective tissue behaviors that are also in play here. So given enough time. Okay, given enough time. So a deadlift is really slow compared to the counter movement in a counter movement jump, right? Mm -hmm. So you may have a, a uh, situation where she can't go from the yield, which is the energy storing position to the energy releasing position. Got it, makes sense, okay. Yeah, so I don't think the strategy would change all that much because you are still emphasizing the, the connective tissue behavior as described, right? So the depth, the depth, and that, that might have something to do with it too. So think about where the hips are positioned in her deadlift relative to where she's gonna be for the counter movement jump. Cause they're not the same, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Does that help? Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, I, had a, uh, I had a similar situation to what Thomas asked. 
you know, sometimes when I have uh, people do uh, the dip for a jerk, so they you know, dip and then they go up or push press or whatever, you know, sometimes people will, uh, they dip too deep. And so then they dampen the dip and then they have nothing to go up with and it sucks. Um, so sometimes, uh, uh, in general, sometimes people will uh, prescribe to do a pause. So you just dip until you reach the depth that you need to go to. So you get the body awareness of how, how far you actually need to go. Yeah. Problem with that is that sometimes you'll have people, okay, they pause, but then in order for them to go up, they go deeper to try to get momentum to try to go back up. Right. They're trying to create the yield so they can store and release the energy. You're, you're absolutely whereas, right. Whereas what you, what you want to do is dip and then from there just go yeah so it's like you try you try to do the pause so that they get their that depth but then it doesn't really help them because then when they actually try to move they just keep going down (laughs) right that's i mean you're absolutely right that that would be typical because again they they understand the the dynamic nature of it but they don't have the strategy available to them one of the one of the simplest things to do um, actually is, um, is, uh, one of the, uh, oscillatory activities. So you put them, you put them, um, just above where, where you would want them to take the dip, have them ramp up all of the tension. So you create the exhalation strategy and then you have them release it. Boom. And so you create this little oscillation. And so that's where I, that's what I would do versus just trying to stop and say hold and this is your spot. I would I would play with that, like literally creating an oscillation in that position. I've got a uh, a, a deeper representation of that. There's a there's a, it might be under it's either like a like an oscillatory squat or or a reactive squat on my uh, YouTube page. Um, but all you gotta do is pick the right depth and you can just like literally just teaching them to create tension release and then retention again um that's that's in my mind it's just a better way to 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 teach that versus just the static hold Mm. yeah see uh yeah i I use those sometimes those are like jerk discs i usually use those with people who have uh who are too concentric because they just they go down too slow you know, like they're, they're like super stiff and then they're, they're, they'll, they'll, they'll muscle it up, but they suck at dipping quickly. So the oscillation is what kind of pushes them down, you know, push them down, bouncing with them. And so then it kind of forces them to yield. yield. Yes. Yes. So, and then the people who tend to dampen tend to be the narrow, you know, tend to be women, um, and narrow ISAs. Yeah. So, but you're saying that that kind of jerk dip activity would still work for the narrows? Absolutely, absolutely. Because again, you're just you're 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 trying to teach the the representation of high tension, release the tension, recapture the tension under in both circumstances. But just do it at a higher. At I, would a higher start them, I would start them. At, I would start them just above where you would think that the ideal dip representation would be because I don't want them to descend below that because that's what they're already doing. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right.
but like, literally it's like you just put a you can put a barbell on their shoulders and teach them how to do that under resistance and then superimpose that representation onto the uh the the dip for the dirt or push press okay okay cool